The new issue of Film Comment is out September 1st, featuring a special section on the 57th New York Film Festival, including Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, Pain and Glory, and Pedro Almodovar on his literary inspirations, Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, Angela Shanalek's I Was at Home But, and Cornelio Poromboyo's The Whistler. Support independent nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. And this is our first Venice Film Festival podcast coming to you from, you guessed it, the Venice Film Festival uh, on the Lido, uh, where we are on day three of the regular screenings. Um, so that means we already have a lot to talk to you about. And who is we? Uh, well, it's me. Um, and I'm very happy to be joined by... Jonathan Romney. Um, and you, you're, you've been, you'll be writing here for uh, Screen. And The Observer. Observer. And a little bit and for film us. And Comment. Yes, yeah. as well as talking with us. Uh, so, so far, um, I guess one thing notable is that the the opening movie was, was not, as, as it has been for a while, a kind of spectacular, um, you know, studio picture. Uh, it was uh, almost the diametrical opposite of that in the sense that it was a Hirokazu Kareda movie, but a a one that's powered by French stars. Uh, that's the truth. Um, but I, I thought we might jump from that um, right into um, a highly highly anticipated title, Ad Astra, the James Gray film, um, which was a I guess the first screen thing screened after um, after the truth. And uh, what what did you think of that, Jonathan? This is a very strange film. Um, <laughs> I haven't normally been a big fan of James Gray. I can't understand the fuss that's made of him, particularly in France, where you know he has really heavyweight auteur status. Although I did actually find myself warming to him with The Lost City of Zed. This is a really strange film. Um, in a sense, you know that sort of feeling you have when, when you know something is not really your kind of film and you can't really buy it 100% and yet you go with it and it wins you over. And reading about it, I'd read very little about it, but it did seem to me like this was going to be James Gray's answer to Interstellar, which basically it is. It's right. Interstellar. The one thing I knew about it is that it's about a man looking for his father in outer space. And I thought, uh-oh. This is really ominous. And then I learned that his father was Tommy Lee Jones and even more <laughs> ominous. Um, it's a very, very odd film. It's set in the near future, you know, which always sort of covers a multitude of sins. And mm. apparently humanity is looking for signs of intelligent life in the great beyond. And Tommy Lee Jones is a man who's gone out to find it and not come back. And there's a series of strange flares from space, which are sort of causing power surges on Earth, uh, and perhaps he's responsible. Brad Pitt plays the uh, the son of a Tommy Lee Jones character who is brought in uh, on a special mission to Mars to send a message to his dad saying, Dad, please, whatever's going on up there, could you please make it stop? Um, and the mission becomes more complicated. And the reason he's chosen for this is, first of all, he is Tommy Lee Jones's son, 
uh, but also um, his pulse rate has never been known to go above 80, which means that he goes through all these ridiculous and extreme adventures with complete yeah. sang-froid. I think he, he raises one eyebrow at one point. You know, and there's an underwater sequence in a spacesuit, and he clambers onto the spaceship. Uh, you know, he gets on board like two seconds after countdown has ended, and, you know, they're ridiculous kind of fist fights in free fall and um you know it's a rattling yarn and there's also one moment in it which is so bizarre one great sort of peril in space moment that is you just think oh, yeah. wow and there's a moment he keeps passing the psychiatric test he has to keep going through his test and the computer says psychiatric test approved and you imagine james gray ha- handing in his first draft <laughs> the machine going psychiatric test not approved i mean it, it, it's a balmy film but hugely entertaining yeah well that's that actually is something that that's how um happened in high life i seem to recall where he also uh, robert patton's character also has to undergo like a regular psych test or some sort of test or status update just to make the ship keep running uh so that, that kind of it's hard not to be reminded of of other other directors who are who are not associated with genre film necessarily um, doing doing their attempt at it. Um, I, I have to say, I was I was in this movie from like from the beginning to to, to the end. Um, even you know, as it really increasingly became this very kind of soul bearing search for father and and reckoning with dad, and you know, a lot of hearing him say a lot of lines that maybe if I hadn't hadn't been like attached to the movie the movie hadn't imprinted itself on me yeah there's a terribly earnest voiceover which runs yeah. all the way through yeah which was risky <laughs> um and it's there and, and and just this general idea of um yeah these these things of galactic global not just global but galactic significance um being uh, coming down to this very personal relationship which feels at, at the same time to me like something um, very profound uh, in that everything, it's all about relationships, <laughs> but also at the, you know, sort of tradition, very traditional and very kind of conservative. It reminds me of this moment of like in like a Forbidden Planet or something where like it was a science fiction movie in the 50s, but it's just steeped in like 50s traditional values. And I don't know, not that this movie is, is that traditional at all. But um, just something about it felt old-fashioned. But I yeah. guess a lot of his movies are kind of that way. Well, it is very old-fashioned. One thing that's interesting about it for me is that it starts off really um, bearing its um, its intent very, very heavily. You know that this is a film which is attempting to restore the sublime Mm-hmm. to the idea of space travel. And a lot of films have really failed to do that. I mean, I didn't get that from Claire Denis' film. I didn't get it from Interstellar. I mean, the weird thing about that film is, like, you know, you go to the ends of a known universe and then you go into another dimension through a wormhole and it's like you've just gone out to the shops and come back. <laughs> and I could actually believe in this because of the strange... Um, you know, the Odyssey structure, which really is Apocalypse Now, basically. You know, right. he's going out to find his father who may have turned into Colonel Kurtz. But it's like, it's Apocalydipus now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do feel, yeah, here is someone going to, you know, the beyond of the the beyond. 
And then he comes back. I mean, without spoiling the ending too much, you know, you're, you're, you're all surprised in these films how easy it is just to come back from the infinite. And that was a great thing about 2001. I mean, in this film, there is reference to the idea of the one-way journey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the few space films which have really established the notion of the journey that you don't come back from right. is 2001. I think most space travel stories have just been too nervous to take that on because it's yeah. frightening because you send people out of a cinema yeah. feeling lost in the yeah. internet. Yeah, well, I guess that's 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 part of what that's part of maybe the nature of it, it being a search for a father so that that's what you're confronting is is someone else's mortality not yet your own so that allows you know the notion of a succession of content continuity because then you'll come back to and what you've really done is you've overcome the past so you do have the future in front of you and there's definitely that mm-hmm. that sense to it because he's just he's just mired i mean this is a movie that I mean, partly because of the voiceover, partly because of these constant psychological evaluations, feels very grounded in therapy a little bit, actually. And actually, the film that I really liked, which did that very well a few years ago, or a couple of decades ago now, was Robert Zemeckis' Contact, Mm. which had Jodie Foster confront her father somewhere in space, or was it really deep within her psyche? Mm -hmm. And because that film wasn't afraid to be, I think, overtly therapeutic and wasn't afraid to be a little bit kitsch as well, it worked brilliantly, whereas here... Um, I couldn't entirely buy the The one thing I I thought would have made the film really wonderful is if his dad had actually been played by Alan Arkin, you know. (laughs) So you came all the way to Neptune. I'm very flattered. Now please go home. (laughs) Tommy Lee Jones, uh, I mean, you get these first glimpses of him with these like transmissions from seem like from beyond the dead. And and he I I have never seen look quite this like ghostly and like, I mean, he really looks like a living ghost. Um, and it is it is pretty haunting. There, there is some wonderful design in it as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, the spaceships look like we're now used to spaceships looking, which is very functional. But when they get to Mars, there are these extraordinary red cloisters, which are suddenly yeah. kind of cloaked in darkness. And then these kind of video rooms, uh, which look beautiful. Um, But it's a film in which um, women seem to have been totally erased and there's very little about his mother, for example. We're not even sure if he has a mother. Right. Uh, But um, Liv Tyler appears as no more than the kind of the ghost of a love he once knew. Yeah. uh, Which made me think those scenes where she comes and hovers in the background rather made me think that uh, Grey had been looking at... uh, um, Soderbergh's yeah. version of Solaris. I, I thought of that too. Yeah. yeah, I definitely thought of that, and 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 that made me think of like the original Solaris as well, and and what because it's interesting, you know, some these all these post two thousand one movies, they the filmmaker often th- clearly is thinking, okay, I'm going to grapple with this big thing now, and what am I going to bring to the table? I mean, consciously or unconsciously, but and then with, with Tarkovsky's Solaris, it's definitely. Uh, that movie felt like a movie that kind of assimilated decades of like thought about memory and how that was a defining thing about the 20th century, you know? And, and then if you flip forward to like Claire Denis movie that I, I definitely saw that movie in terms of taboos and and that sort of thing and that, and, and pushing kind of a cinema, cinema of extremity into, into space. Um, And in this movie, you know, it, it feels of a piece with James Gray's other, other work and, 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 um, I, so I did really buy the, the feeling that of, 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 of uh, kind of distilling it all into this one powerful relationship and also reckoning with, you know, 
repression, basically, because because Brad Pitt's character is, I mean, I thought it was a great performance. I I'm, I've been pretty happy with Brad Pitt <laughs> for you know this movie and, and the Tarantino movie. Um, just this totally willfully with all his strength of will being this contained person and, and, and very reserved and, and, and held in and being persuasive at it. Need a spacesuit because <laughs> he's sealed into his own spacesuit. That's right. So, I yeah. mean, I, I have to say what I've said about the film probably makes it sound as if I found it completely preposterous, and in a way I did, but it totally carried me. And I think you know, within its own terms, when when a film establishes its terms and makes you accept them, even though perhaps you normally wouldn't, um, yeah. that really is some kind of success. And I did think the film brought this off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to another film, but I just want to quickly mention that I really like the score of this movie as well. I mean, there are a lot of different movements to it. and Which is Max Richter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know, the, the idea of pulse, we were, you know, talking about his heartbeat earlier, that does come through a little bit in, in the music. Um, and yeah, also, it, it, it um, I think it, uh, especially in how it sh- shoots the actors, I thought it was... Um, consistently unexpected uh, and, and how it was framing people and um, lighting people. I thought that was nice. And and there are, I guess, certain visual, as you're saying, cliches about space on film now. One of them being that that particular amber color, <laughs> something that seems to be our future in the space interior design or lighting. Um, but even there, I, I, I felt like uh, it was it was refreshing it or, or doing something new with it. Um, so, so yeah, that's Ad Astra. James it is actually. Old, I, oh, yeah. I do get the sense now that the the science fiction movie, as we've always traditionally known it, has almost now become a kind of heritage genre in the same way mm-hmm. that the western yeah. has become or became several years ago, and in the same way that you know, in the eighties on, people said, "Look, you can still make westerns." Right. People are now saying you can still make space travel movies. Yeah. No, that 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 really rings true, and. I mean, I guess we were kind of flooded with this, this space milieu with TV shows for for a long time, and uh, but uh, yeah. Um, so Ad Astra actually comes out in the states in two or three weeks. I think it's um, definitely quite anticipated. Um, but what else has shown? I guess um, we also saw Marriage Story, um, Noah Baumbach um, with uh, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. Well, that's a great film from start to finish. I have and to agree. It, it plays a brilliant trick because at the beginning, you have these two voiceovers, um, uh, a couple talking about each other, uh, describing each other's merits, and, you know, she's spon- so spontaneous and he's so great at dealing with people, you know, that kind of thing. And then you see scenes from the family and it's all really charming and sweet and they're with their kids and it's funny and it's tender and you kind of begin to feel slightly nauseous until you realize that these are the accounts they've written of each other for their therapist as they're splitting up or he he's a kind of you know mediation counselor person or something, and, yeah. and he says i want you to both write nice things about people and um the husband, played by Adam Driver, has read out his version, but the wife, played by Scarlett Johansson, is not going to read hers out. Uh, she's written these nice things about him, but she's not going to read them out, and she leaves the room. And then this comes back at the end in a very poignant way, but everything in this film that's poignant is 
to say the least, bittersweet. And, you know, emotionally it's devastating. You know, it's about yeah. this couple who break up and he's a theatre director in New York. Um, she's a movie actress who's given up Hollywood to work with him in theatre. Now she's going back to L.A. Um, it's about, you know, the differences in culture between the two coasts. Um, and it's about what happens when, you know, they kind of, try and formalize their parting and the lawyers come in who are played variously by Laura Dern, Alan Alder and Ray Liotta who are yeah. all completely brilliant in very different ways. Yeah. The performances are absolutely mesmerizing. It's it's utterly heartbreaking and it, it's quite sort of unforgiving. You know, he doesn't yeah. um, he doesn't kind of spare you any of the pain. Um, and it's it's really, you know, it's it's the Kramer versus Kramer of our day, but much, much harder and and yeah. more insightful and pitiless. And it's really, you know, you will come out completely devastated. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's companion piece or, or other half to the squid and the whale, um, just kind of flipping the perspective a bit from to that of the parents. Um, uh, I guess another difference with, with Kramer versus Kramer, you know, it's, it's it's it, it it's not implicitly about what will happen to the kid necessarily. It's um, it's really I, I yeah I was I was definitely just really floored uh, by it uh, and I also felt that it showed both the leads at, at kind of separate peaks as well. Um, I mean Adam Driver, who I'm always pretty pretty interested in him on screen. I mean he just he has a way of always being a half beat out of things and, and, and surprising you. Um, but Scarlett Johansson, I have, I, I'm, I have trouble trying to think of the last role that she's had like this, where she really, um, is so, has this just raw candor to, to her presentation. Um, that just, you know, I guess this, the star quality gets stripped away a bit. Um, and you know, he, they they also, I guess, fuss with her appearance a little bit so that she looks a bit, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't know, just more, uh, again, like kind of raw in, in a way. Um, and yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's a hard and extremely rewarding, uh, film to watch. Um, and it really gets at a lot of the nastiness that can come out of quite naturally out of the, you know, depths of, of, of love and, and, and hatred and, uh, resentment. And so, and so if you can just imagine like Noah Baumbach, all these like sort of witty acerbic lines that he has written f from all these films beforehand where, you know, to a certain extent they all felt like kind of. I don't want to, I want to say like, uh, I don't know, portraits in miniature, you know, one movie to the next, like Greenberg or something like getting these particular types here. I actually felt he kind of broke out of that to a certain extent where these felt like more characters that kind of lived and breathe on their own. I mean, he definitely has even throwaway lines that kind of like encapsulate whole like cultural and social scenes in this movie. Um, I mean, like the theater, theater, bunch of theater um, the theater the theater scenes yeah. are amazing, you know, people doing these extraordinary sort of physical exercises. Yeah. And this um, terrible sort of veteran narcissist <laughs> played by Wallace Shawn, who is just absolutely yeah. mesmerizingly appalling. Um, <laughs> it's also got, I think, the best use of a Sondheim song. Oh, in, yeah. in any film, <laughs> and Adam Driver sings a, a, a song from Company at the end, yeah. and you know. You're just riveted. It's yeah. uh, and it, it it tells you what the whole film is about, but it's the perfect, it's the perfect encapsulation of this yeah. this sort of hell that you've been through for two hours before. Yeah, 
The yeah. kid is very good. And the kid the is good. You yeah. know, and that's the other thing. Like, all, all of those supporting... You, you know, you mentioned the, each of the lawyers being these, uh, you know, really wonderful performances of, like, types of lawyer. <laughs> you know, like... And I just had to think, oh, I guess maybe celebrities have to deal with lawyers a lot because <laughs> they, they nail them. I mean, Ray Liotta is just this, like, bulldog lawyer who's just immediately like parsing the situation for you know how much you're gonna have to pay oh how much is that oh you're gonna have to do this you're gonna have to do that it's it's just it's exactly right <laughs> who has his sort of mini me yeah, uh, right. assistant bulldog yeah. sitting in the corner of the room yeah a very large room yeah. so you're intimidated that sort of thing whereas laura dern's lawyer is like she takes the more like kind of you know intimate approach she, She'll she curl hugs. Up, she hugs. She curls up on the couch next to you, and then yeah. trades trades kind of secrets. Tells you about what she's struggled through, and uh, you know, of course, um, there's truth to what she's saying. But you know, also, and then Alan Alda, the, this kind of grandfatherly lawyer. I never thought I'd be talking about like the the portrayal of lawyers in a movie, but this happens to be one that actually goes right into it and gets it. It's kind of funny. I, it's a movie that kind of, not that I ever think of Noah Baumbach as kind of like a specialty filmmaker or a specialized taste, but I have to admit that it's kind of puzzling to me why he doesn't have an even bigger profile. As I mean, people often say, oh, no one makes adult movies anymore. And I don't know, this is it. You know, this is, this is the, <laughs> A, the a, a, adult movie. Um, and so people should come and see it, <laughs> uh, is what I would say. Um, and this also comes out in in the fall. It's a, um, a, a, a produced by Netflix, and I think it has a November release. I want to say, um, but yeah, it sh- should get a lot of attention. So that was quite a day, quite a grueling day between Brad Pitt searching for his dad in space and uh, Scarlett Johansson and and uh, Adam Driver to each other's throats. Yeah, and and actually the lesson you take from those two films, <laughs> you know, is if you have to go through a divorce or. <laughs> go to Neptune the divorce is probably the easier route <laughs> yeah no, sorry Neptune thought, is the easier right, yeah that's route. what I yeah, thought yeah. you were going to say yeah. Yeah. Neptune walk in the park the new issue of Film Comment is out September 1st featuring a special section on the 57th New York Film Festival including Bong Joon-ho's Parasite Pain and Glory and Pedro Almodovar on his literary inspirations Noah Bombach's Marriage Story Angela Shanalek's I Was at Home But and Corneliu Porumboyu's The Whistlers. Plus, film education, Piotr Shulkin, fake movies, remembering John Singleton and Rip Torn, and much, much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. So that'll bring us um, to another day of screenings, uh, which would be today. Um, and we kicked off today with... A movie that is a lot of people have looked forward to for different reasons, um, but that is the new Roman Polanski movie, Jacuz. Uh, it's kind of there in the title. <laughs> uh, this is a movie where, I mean, well, you know, we can talk about it. At, uh, I had it's it's you know it's a movie where the kind of extra textual factors are are you're, you're thinking about it a little. Um, it's 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 hard it's hard not to because I almost think the movie he's positioned the movie a little bit in that way with a lot of his choices of material and perspective and things. Um, but basically, it's a movie about the Dreyfus affair, seen from the perspective of Dreyfus's main defender. Colonel uh, Picard, by Jean Dujardin. But yes, um, who is already familiar to the American public through The Artist, which was an Oscar-winning film. Um, and 
basically it's his uphill battle against the the established forces of the French government and especially like its intelligence services at that point um, in the 19th century. Um, and it's a fully like realized period piece with all these you know beautiful little obsessive details about the types of drawers people use to keep folders and um, you know uh, and, and it was a just so idea of like how the fashionable set live or, or you know um, and uh, I I have to say I, I liked it I found it a, as a drama a solid drama I mean maybe in dangers of becoming a little too methodical um, because it he's definitely takes you through the paces of um, you know first the the false ac- accusation and, and trial you know through which um, Dreyfus is, is exiled to an island which is, I guess is what you did in, in France if you really want to get rid of someone well they made a special case for him because at the beginning they're talking about whether they're going to send him to the uh, prison at Cayenne right. and they said no no we're going to get taken right. somewhere where no one can talk to him and he can talk to no one yeah. which is Devil's Island where he's just kind of shut up in this shack yeah, it, which is yeah, a special kind of torture and a, and, a, and a very pointed form of social isolation that kind of realizes the anti-Semitic impulse of, of expulsion and total like isolation mm. from the you know from cu- culture and society. Um, and so yeah, the movie goes through the pace of that Dujardin being kind of this very um, noble figure throughout. Um, and uh, Dreyfus is played by Louis Garrel. But actually, is not a huge presence in the film. He's and barely recognized. And uh, true, yeah. Well, the hair is gone. <laughs> the hair is gone. Actually, a lot of people are. One thing the movie gets across, I thought, it was kind of an effective device. Maybe it's historically accurate. Everyone had these mustaches, which, to, in c- certain points, kind of makes a lot of people look alike. It's kind of this social conformity idea, I think, that is is effective. Um, and yeah, just the regular brutal, you know, uh, vitriol of the public and and the. the biases and 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 underhanded uh you know machinations of uh, the government covering up lies and etc cetera, etc cetera. well it's a very traditional film in many ways and for the first half hour i thought well this is going to be very solid and even leaden it certainly felt very academic but it's conviction and it's methodical nature are such that you are absolutely gripped and mm-hmm. and uh the decision which presumably is is straight from robert harris's book because right. he's co-written right. the adaptation right. um the decision to make it a sort of forensic forensic investigative story yeah uh with dujardin um covering up um the i'm sorry uncovering rather the uh, the cover-up uh, that's been perpetrated because people keep saying well the jews are involved obviously and uh you know this person must be lying and that person must be lying so you know the degree to which anti-semitism um not only uh was present in french society at this time but really seemed to be a very powerful motivating force in many in many social and political decisions and it's very very disturbing and it's something that's very easily forgotten and i think it's also something that has been rather covered up um in french history after mm-hmm. world war ii for obvious yeah. reasons but it is one of you know one of uh a number of um political marks on um french history um and the film actually the reason it works so well is because Dujardin his character is not 
noble. Um, you know, he's a man of integrity who believes in justice and he believes in truth. But he is as virulent an anti-Semite as anyone else around him. It's simply he believes he has a job to do and he intends to do it properly and not be stopped. Right. And the fact that from the beginning he comes across as in many ways deeply unsympathetic, you know, and even quite loathsome, is really fascinating. Now, to what degree you can also see the film as sort of indirectly uh, Polanski's comment on his own history and his own situation, I'm not sure I buy that. What I certainly see in the film is... Um, a warning that public opinion can be very easily manipulated mm -hmm. and that it can be wrong and hateful and driven by the wrong motivations. Um, and very much, you know, in the form of the uh, the letter, the open letter in the press that um, uh, Emi Zola wrote, um, exposing the case under the headline, J'accuse, um, it's a declaration in, in belief in, in a free press and investigative journalism against the powers that be, uh, which is obviously uh, a more potent theme now than it has been for many, many years anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, you're absolutely right that it's that that the kind of motive force for the movie is that of an investigative thriller, basically, and and uh, you know even with little bits of spike like you know <laughs> analog spycraft um, in it, the whole movie ends up ends up serving for a kind of reducto ad absurdum about the, this kind of bias, which is that the government is just falling over themselves with ridiculous things they're saying. We're we're recording this sort of fresh, more or less fresh out of the screening. I, I haven't yet heard what what reactions are to it, but I, I'll, I will be curious. Been very positive. Yeah. I got the impression that people were not expecting a great deal from yeah. Polanski these days. I mean, I I can't really think of the last time a film of his was extraordinary and. You know, I don't think this is extraordinary, extraordinary, but in a very traditional, very authoritative way, it it yeah. makes you sit up and pay attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it was probably the ghostwriter. I guess was was the, um, and I, you know, maybe there are flickers of that. Um, and yeah, and you you do see little tiny maybe Polanski touches creep up here and again. I I almost feel like the shot of someone spotting someone looking a little like them ac across the street from their bed bedroom to another like bedroom window is almost a Polanski kind of <laughs> signature shot. And that does happen once. Um, but uh, yeah, um, well, that's Jacuz. Uh, and the other film today is Seaberg. Oh, <laughs> that's a cry of pain already. Yeah. From Jonathan. It was terrible. This is mm. um, the story of how Gene Seaberg was, uh, persecuted um, by the FBI uh, because of her relationship with a black power um, activist. Um, and it's, it's really horrible. I mean, it's a real missed opportunity. The saddest thing about it is that you know, just as we were you know, getting used to the idea that, that there is no such thing as um, a bad Kristen Stewart performance, she unfortunately she just doesn't look very comfortable here and i don't think she's doing what she can do but one of the problems is the film focuses so much on making her look like 
the iconic uh, image of Seberg that we know from uh, Abu de Souffle. And actually, by the end of the 60s, she looked rather different. She wasn't this delicate gamine anymore. And the film somehow doesn't allow her to be mature as, as mm. Seberg was by that. And, and Seberg had had a difficult time being married to Romain Gary who had also directed her in his own films. And he's played in the film by Yvan Attal as simply a rather kind of glum, sombre uh, patriarch. But we don't get any sense of their relationship or the way it may have affected her or damaged her by that point. Um, and actually the performance and the way she looks, I kept thinking, well, this would be really great if it could be re-edited into a biopic of Edie Sedgwick. She would have been perfect. But I can't believe that um, Seberg was as one-dimensional and, and, and callow um, and gauche as she seems in this film. And it's a real shame because, as we know, you know, Kristen Stewart can be terrific. Yeah, but electric. maybe she's simply not quite old enough for that part you know yeah it's it's it was a movie I, I you know i was it was a movie that i was kind of pulling for you know partly mm -hmm. because of kristen stewart being in it um and also other other people in the cast anthony mackie plays hakeem jamal who is you know the uh i guess educator activist um that seberg falls for uh you know while she's still married to uh, roman gary um and she's in la and her husband's in paris um, and that's 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 you know it's that's part of how she she gets involved and attracted to the Black Power mo movement and Black Panthers um, ends up donating money et cetera et cetera. Um, but anyway, yeah, Anthony Mackie, he's fine. <laughs> you know, everyone's just kind of fine in the movie. You know, it's 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 stupid. I like Z Z Zazie Beetz is another actress who I just really love, um, and she's just given kind of thank the the, the traditional thankless role. The uh, wronged um, wife, uh, Jack O'Connell. I can't say I have particularly strong feelings about. And for me, he was a real just hunk of wood in, in the movie. He he, and also part of what the movie just has this basic structural problem that it's it's half seen through the perspective of a sympathetic FBI agent, um, and so you have like good FBI agent, bad FBI agent. Bad FBI agent is played like by Vince Vaughn in his kind of like happy asshole mode. O'Connell plays, I, I barely even remember his name, frankly. That's how little of an impression he makes, but he's he's the guy who starts having regrets or, 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 or qualms a little bit about um, surveilling um, um, Seberg and, and just <laughs> leading the team that is leading her into, into misery um, through, you know, surveillance and harassment. And yeah, he just... Whatever the opposite of leaping off the screen is, he he does not do that. Um, so that's a kind of big hole in the movie. Um, and I'm going to be very pedantic as well. It's a sort of period film where they just haven't got the details right. Um, I mean, I couldn't quite buy that she was dressed in 1969 the way she would have been in 62 or 65. You know, a lot changed in the 60s. Uh, but maybe I'm being uh, too pedantic there. But there was certainly a lot of men's hairstyles that... <laughs> You would not have seen then and you know it's very easy to do the 60s you know you just watch every episode of mad men with a notebook and you see how it's been got right and you right. you take notes you know <laughs> um this seemed very empty and very foolish the one moment i liked was the use of scott walker song from that period it's raining but when yeah the thing you like best about a film is a soundtrack choice you know that it's really screwed 
Yeah, and there were a couple of other good song choices um, as as well. I, it's yeah, and and I mean, I guess I could say uh, the costume design is is pretty sumptuous. Like they, the, whoever was dressing Kristen Stewart in this movie just went all out, and there's just this beautiful succession of like beautifully colored dresses and and and, and minis and and you know homeware and outerwear. Just like they just went nuts. Um, so that looks great. Um, and and but yeah. And actually, you know, when I say Kristen Stewart is not old enough for the role, I don't mean technically she's not old enough, and I don't mean that she's not mature enough, but what I mean is that Jean Seberg, you know, if you see her later films, there is the sense that somehow she had aged drastically, not not just visibly, uh, but somehow, you know, in her soul, she had aged um, since... Um, her early roles and that you know something really terrible had happened to her in those years and you do get an impression this on the idea that she had been really physically and emotionally scarred by working with Otto Preminger in his um, St. Joan um, but we don't really get a sense of who she is and I don't think that Stuart really you know has her heart in it somehow yeah, it's it's hard to say. It's also a movie. I mean, I I don't want to. It it feels like it's almost, it's almost staying a step away from showing how really bad it it, it was, <laughs> how it got, both in what was done to her and how she felt and and how she what 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 it drove her to. Because basically, they kind of, you know, are, are de- depicting her as people are thinking she's going crazy, and that's kind of the extent of it. But like, it it, it could have been shown a lot uglier, I think, and 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 maybe would have been truer to the ugliness of the whole episode really um but that's also where the the, the having the the voice of the sympathetic fbi agent i mean again i'm not familiar enough with the history perhaps that's true and that's how we know about some of it but um foregrounding it the way the movie does i think is it, it ends up taking up space that that kind of takes the air out of it well that's that's uh that's seaberg uh directed by benedict andrews who i guess directed una was, was the previous thing uh with rooney mara um, I'm, those have sort of been the big movies so far. I guess coming up, we still have Wasp Network. Um, we have uh, a Pablo Larín film. Um, what else? Are there any other big things I'm forgetting? We've got uh, the next installment of um, uh, Sorrentino's The Young Pope, which is called <laughs> The New Pope. Right. That's right. Um, so, yeah, definitely a few more things coming up. Um, any 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 small, comparatively smaller film you want to mention here? I guess we kind of skipped over the perfect candidate. I guess people might be curious about that. That's Haifa Al Mansur, was the director. Yeah, and that was a very odd um, choice for competition because obviously the f- festival has been very controversial this year, having only had one female director in competition last year. It now has two. Uh, it's been, you know, it's it's hardly in advance, and they may have thought, okay, well, we'll give them, you know, a proper feminist statement, uh, so they can have that, uh, okay. and uh, it'll keep the critics quiet. Um, it, it's not a good film. It's it's an important film. It's a laudable film. It's about the situation of women in Saudi Arabia, and the heroine is 
um, a young doctor who is, um, you know, clearly super competent and confident and uh, would go places if only Saudi um, society gave her the chance. And of course, the first time we see her is in a car um, because um, women in Saudi Arabia were only allowed driving licenses mm. a year ago. Right. So there is a sense that, you know, she is a representative of a generation of women who are going to seize the opportunity and make up for lost time. Um, and she stands for candidate uh, and municipal council uh, with, with the cause of, of repaving a road that leads to her clinic so that it's safe and accessible. Um, and she runs up against a lot of, um, you know, fairly predictable, not too um, kind of, you know, over-emphatically shown male opposition. But the film is is more of a kind of polemical piece than really it's effective as a drama. And it, it was obviously a necessary film to make. Um, it's in a way, it's, it, it, it makes its point the way that, for example, certain Ken Loach films make, and it doesn't sort of transcend its, its purpose. Uh, but in some ways, it comes across as... Um, you know, a pamphlet as much as anything. And, um, you know, it, the idea that it's carrying half the weight of all the female presence in competition uh, just feels a bit odd. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, another movie I was very curious to see. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have to agree that it, it also just sort of felt that dramatically felt kind of by the numbers. I, I don't think... I ever didn't expect someone to say what they were going to say at any given time, um, and which you know makes it tough for for a, a lead performer as well to do much with the material when when everything kind of feels step by step like that. And actually, you know, if you look how many women directors are in prominent positions in Toronto, you know, mm -hmm. the idea that oh, we just didn't find them. And, you know, one of the extraordinary things the festival has said this year is, oh, well, no, you know, we program blind. We don't look at who the directors are. And you think, really? Well, what do they do? Do they put on uh, quick <laughs> cover up your eyes for director's credits? <laughs> well, credit comes up, doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. Yeah, that. And then, I don't know, I'm never going to forget Lucretia Martel not being in competition, you know. Like, no, which is great. This is Zama, one of the great, great films of recent yeah. years. It just makes no sense at all. Yeah, so... So, yeah, I mean, that's that's that perfect candidate. I think that was actually opening opening day conspicuous um, position as well. Um, and beside that, um, I don't know, there's plenty more we have to see. I saw a couple of documentaries, but I might save that for, for later on. I think we'll we'll conserve our strength uh, for, our, for our next episode. Um, any, any parting thoughts? Uh, no, except it's very nice sitting out here listening to the crickets. And I don't know if they're drowning our voices out. but uh, We are al fresco for this, so you might hear some ambient noise. Yeah. And we should come back in a couple of days when apparently the sound we're going to be hearing is thunderstorms. Oh, Three days true. of yeah. thunderstorms. Very true. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Angie. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. The new issue of Film Comment is out September 1st, featuring a special section on the 57th New York Film Festival, including Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, Pain and Glory, and Pedro Almodovar on his literary inspirations, Noah Bombach's Marriage Story, Angela Shanalek's I Was at Home But, and Cornelio Poromboyo's The Whistler. Support independent nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.